Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, in late August 1989, a crime hotline in Nebraska received a call from a man who claimed to have information about shocking crimes committed on a farm near Mooresville, Missouri. The owners were already being investigated for conspiracy and fraud charges, but the tip changed the course of the investigation entirely. Once the owners were arrested and charged with conspiracy to steal cattle, with bad checks from an employee's account, a search of their 40-acre property began. The expansive farm was situated in rural northwest Missouri, around 90 miles from Kansas City. Mooresville, which is close to Chillicothe, was a small town with a population of fewer than 150 people. As the search began, it seemed as though most residents lined the driveway to watch what was happening. A backhoe and bloodhounds were brought in to scour the fields and outbuildings on October 10, 1989, and rumors immediately began to spread. As Livingston County Sheriff's deputies filed out of the farmhouse with brown paper evidence bags, Reporters scrambled to ask the sheriff if there was any truth to the speculation that dozens of bodies had been buried there. Sheriff Leland O'Dell didn't give much away, but he told reporters, We do not have confirmation on any bodies down there. We don't have any confirmation on bodies or parts of bodies. Deputies continued to dig on a hillside at the back of the property until dark for two nights, directed by Jack McCormick, the man who had called in the tip. Sniffer dogs from Kansas State Penitentiary tried to pick up a scent in the barns and the woodpiles on the farm. Behind the closed door of the small yellow-framed farmhouse, deputies collected copious amounts of troubling evidence. Inside the closet in the guest bedroom, deputies found clothes in different sizes as well as luggage. There was also a patchwork quilt that had been made from different pieces of clothing. Inside a Polaroid camera case, they found a list of over 20 names. An X had been marked beside some of them. Banking records and other documents were seized along with a rifle, but nothing else was found on the farm. 
On October 13th, a major case squad consisting of 20 officers from nine counties was established and enlisted to assist in the investigation. After a tip came in about a farm 12 miles away near Ludlow, the officers began searching once again. Within hours, three decomposed bodies were discovered in shallow graves inside a barn on the property. The breakthrough stunned the communities and the nation, especially when they considered the fact that the prime suspects were an elderly couple. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 42 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Faye Wilson was born in 1921 outside of Harrison, Arkansas. The third child of seven born to Rufus and Gladys Wilson, Faye was brought up with Christian values at the heart of her family. She received a basic education up until the eighth grade when she left school to help support her family in the aftermath of the Great Depression. From the age of 10, Faye worked where she could to add to the money her father made as a lumberman. In early 1940, Faye went to the doctor's office in Harrison and caught the gaze of a tall farmer who was seven years her senior. Ray Copeland was born in Oklahoma, but moved to Arkansas with his parents and four siblings at a young age. As the second-born, Ray had received even less of an education than Faye. He left school in the fourth grade and couldn't really read or write, but he seemed to have a knack for forging checks and had served a year in jail for the crime. Ray and Faye were married within a few months, and a baby boy was born the following year. They named him Everett. Four more sons and a daughter followed in two-year intervals for the next eight years as the young family moved from state to state, looking for steady work. Ray was convicted of cattle theft and forgery a number of times, and spent time in and out of jail as his children grew up. In 1966, the Copelands moved to a 40-acre farm in Mooresville, Missouri. Never one to shy away from work, Faye had maintained employment while raising their kids, Everett, Billy Ray, Betty Lou, Alvia, and William Wayne. They needed her income to help pay the $40 mortgage each month. Ray was undeterred by his earlier stints in jail, and he continued to write bad checks at cattle sales but he soon developed a new scheme. He had to, because the bank was about to foreclose on their home. He would hire drifters or transients and get them to write the checks instead, but the police soon realized what he was doing. When Ray and Faye were arrested in October 1989, they were charged with conspiracy to commit theft because they had allegedly taken in unemployed men and set them up bank accounts before using them to purchase cattle with bad checks. By the time the check bounced, Ray had sold the cattle, and there was nothing linking him to the theft. Jack McCormick, a 57-year-old man who had a drinking problem and had a hard time earning an honest living, was first approached by Ray Copeland at the Victory Mission in Springfield, Missouri, 200 miles from the Mooresville farm in July 1989. Ray said he needed someone to drive a truck for him and promised to pay $50 per day. Jack was eager to take the job, so he grabbed whatever belongings he had and left with Ray that day. 
On the drive to Morseville, Ray told Jack that the job would give him a chance to gain some respect, and, on top of the $50 per day, he would also have free room and board on the farm. It seemed too good to be true, but Jack wasn't about to pass up the opportunity. 75-year-old Ray spoke about how it was getting more difficult to hear at cattle auctions, so Jack agreed to let him set up a post office box and bank account in Jack's name in Brookfield. Ray said that he would lodge his own money into the account, and McCormick just had to write the checks at the cattle auctions. So Jack and Ray would travel to rural cattle auctions and buy upwards of $1,000 worth of cattle and have them delivered to the Copeland's farm. Ray wasted little time in settling the cattle on, but when the check started to bounce, it didn't take long for Jack's name to be blacklisted at the auctions and marts. After just two weeks on the farm, Jack decided to leave. A day earlier, he had gone with Ray to an auction in Green City, and Ray had instructed him to buy a carload of cattle. Unsure of what that meant, and knowing there wasn't much money in the bank account, Jack bought three cattle, and Ray was furious. Jack woke up to Ray standing over him with a twenty-two caliber rifle at 5 a.m., and Ray asked him to help him get a raccoon out of the barn. As Jack was looking into a hole in the barn floor, he glanced over his shoulder straight down the barrel of the rifle. Ray then left the barn to get a cattle prod for Jack to poke into the hole to draw out the raccoon. But Jack spotted a plastic sheet and a shovel in the trailer that was attached to the tractor. When Ray came back, he pointed to something high up in the barn, and when Jack looked up, Ray pointed the gun straight at him once again. Sensing Jack's fear, Ray simply said, I wouldn't shoot you, Jack. Ray agreed to drive Jack to Brookfield to close out the checking account. After handing the money over to Ray, Jack refused to return to the farm with them to collect his belongings and opted to go get some alcohol instead. Jack went to a car dealership and spoke to the owner, Terry Wolf, about test driving a $495 Ford Pinto. The dealer later said, He told me he was a retired embalmer and said he only needed an old car to get back and forth to the airport because he owned a plane. He also said he'd had open heart surgery. He called me by his first name like he knew me. He was good. Jack drove to a bar where he met a woman named Rose Clevenger. Over a few drinks, he told Rose about the Copelands and his fear that if he returned to their farm alone to collect his luggage, something terrible would happen to him. Rose agreed to accompany him to Mooresville. Ray and Faye were on the porch when Jack arrived, and they cursed at him as he grabbed his belongings and loaded them into the stolen car. Faye questioned Rose about who she was. Jack had introduced her as his sister, but Faye wasn't convinced and insisted on seeing Rose's ID. Ray had asked Jack about his family before, and seemed surprised when Jack told him that he did have relatives. Ray told him not to tell anyone he was staying with him and said, Well, I guess you're not too close to them. You won't have time to talk with them when you're working for me. Papers later recovered from the farmhouse bore Rose's name and the license plate from the Ford. McCormick got as far as Lebanon, 170 miles away, before he abandoned the stolen car at the airport after it broke down. He then continued north to Nebraska. Here, he called a local Crime Stoppers hotline and reported the scheme Ray used to buy cattle with bad checks. Investigators in neighboring states already had an idea of what was going on, and the case had been building for three years. Livingston County Sheriff Odell said they had issued arrest warrants for the men who had written bad checks in cattle sales over the previous years, but 
these people had just disappeared, he said. When Jack McCormick told the police he had seen a human skull and leg bone behind one of the barns on the farm, the deputies wondered if that was where they might find the missing men. After Ray and Faye were arrested for the bad check scheme, dozens of officers descended on the farm to search for the human remains Jack had told them he saw. Two more men had been recruited by Ray between Jack's departure in August and Ray's arrest in October. Lothar Borner met Ray at the Souls Harbor Mission in Joplin and agreed to the same deal Jack had been offered. But within a few days, Lothar suspected something was wrong and he left. James Page moved to the farm in September. Like Jack, he allowed Ray to set up a post office and bank account for him and accompanied him to cattle auctions. James was at the farm when the Copelands were taken into custody. Jack had since been arrested in Oregon and charged in connection with another check crime, but he was brought to the farm to point out where he had seen the bones. At the scene, Jack confessed that he hadn't actually seen anything, but the rumors about bodies being buried by Ray Copeland led to tips from members of the public. Ray had worked on other farms from time to time, including one in Ludlow. The owner of the farm, Neil Bryan, said that Ray had worked for him every now and then for almost 20 years. Mr. Bryan told the press, He wasn't on the payroll. He did contract jobs. He's dependable, a very hardworking guy. Very surprising to me that he found time to get into mischief. Inside a hay barn, the investigators uncovered a shallow grave. Beneath blankets and layers of clay, they found three bodies lying together. Greg Kuhn from the Major Case Squad spoke at a press conference in Chillicothe the following night. He could not identify the sex of the victims, but said, The bodies are in one piece. Let's just say they were human bodies. The bodies were in a high state of decomposition. This makes examination by forensic personnel more difficult. Cause of death has yet to be determined. Anthropology experts, as well as other forensic personnel, now will have an opportunity to examine the remains. Although we are not looking for a specific number of bodies, we are making every effort to follow all the possible locations as they become known to us. We're still following leads. We've got several leads left to follow. The remains were sent to the University of Missouri and Columbia to be examined by the county coroner. Searches continued on Mr. Bryan's farm, before moving to another location close by where Ray had also worked, and another body was discovered under the floor beneath the hay bales in the barn. Joe Ray and Dee Adams had bought the farm from Ted Locke a few years earlier, and Locke had gotten Ray Copeland to work for him in the hay barn before. Mr. Locke said Ray was a good worker, and just a big old raw-boned man, he told reporters. He wasn't a steady hired hand. I just hired him by the hour when I wanted him. But there sure is something funny about this. Nobody can believe this is happening, but it is. Some locals could believe it, though. Ray Copeland had a reputation as being a mean old man. His neighbor, Mrs. Anderson, said that Copeland had knocked down their family dogs on two occasions, and it seemed intentional. He frequented coffee shops and cafes in Chillicothe, where he would offer drifters some work, but he was far from pleasant to the waitresses who served him. One cafe owner recalled, He was always upset with the girls. When he sat down, he wanted his order yesterday. Ray never hired locals either, 
People saw men come and go from the old farmhouse, but they never seemed to stay for long. Numerous homeless shelters and mission centers across Missouri reported that Ray Copeland had been seen speaking with transients. Kevin Gleason, the director of a mission in Springfield, hundreds of miles from Mooresville, said, He apparently was a regular face among the street people here. They all knew him. Investigators said that as many as 20 drifters had worked for the Copeland since 1986. At least nine remain unaccounted for, and they were trying to locate them. The excavations and searches had halted, but the four victims were yet to be identified. Each of the bodies were found in advanced states of decomposition. They were all believed to be white males, and all had been killed by a gunshot wound to the head. An assistant attorney general was brought in to help investigators to decide whether to file murder charges against the Copelands. Greg Kuhn from the Major Case Squad said, We want to make sure that when we start our case, we do it right. The first three victims were identified through dental records as 20-year-old Paul Jason Cowart, 27-year-old John Freeman, and 27-year-old Jimmy Dale Harvey. All three had stayed at the mission in Springfield, where Ray was seen speaking with other unemployed men. Jimmy Harvey hadn't much luck when it came to maintaining employment. He suffered from epilepsy, and it often cost him his job. His mother, Ann Netherton, said that he had resorted to selling his own blood just to afford cigarettes in October 1988, but then he was offered a job driving a truck on a cattle farm. Jimmy's mother said, Boy, he thought he found him a good job. He never dreamed he was so close to his death. Anne had last seen Jimmy on October 6, 1988, when he told her about the new job he'd been offered by a man he met at a shelter in Springfield. She told the press, He said he was going for it. We never heard a word since that day. A bank account in Jimmy Harvey's name was opened in Gallatin that same month. The last check to clear the account was for $500 and made out to Ray Copeland. Jimmy was raised in Oklahoma City, but had moved to Springfield a few years before his death. She began to worry about Jimmy when he didn't come home for the holidays. But when she tried to file the missing persons report, she was told that Jimmy was an adult who could make his own decisions. In April 1989, Anne received a letter from a prosecutor in Odessa that said that a check in Jimmy's name made out to a cattle barn for $1,600 had bounced. She was suspicious when she saw that the check was signed with his full name. He never went by James. Anne knew that her son was among the men found buried in a barn in October. She had traveled to Chillicothe to identify clothing belonging to Jimmy before he was formally identified. Anne described Jimmy as a good kid, who would cook hot dogs and chili for her most evenings, and he would never hurt anybody. She couldn't understand why anyone would shoot him, but said, God will handle it. I don't want to hate nobody. I do want to see justice done. John Freeman was a divorced father of one. In December 1988, he stopped by his brother Don and sister-in-law Joyce's house in Tulsa, after spending a few months working construction in California. John was heading home to Indiana to stay with his mother in order to be close to his eight-year-old son Michael and ex-wife Sherry, who also lived there. John's brother and sister-in-law said, He wanted to be back home with his boy. Michael was really high on his dad, and family was really important to John. That's why he couldn't stay in California. 
Weeks went by, and they didn't hear from John. He never went more than a week or two without checking in, so they began to worry and filed a missing persons report. John likely received the same job offer as the other men. Don said that John was a really trusting person. He trusted children, and he trusted elderly people. A bank account under John's name was opened a short time later in Chillicothe. The address provided was the Copeland's. John's mother, Rose, said, I just want to know why. Why do you shoot somebody? I've talked to ministers. I've talked to just about everybody. And they just say, have faith. 20-year-old Paul Cowart was born in Arkansas and lived in Dardanelle with his mother, Edith, and stepfather, Gail. They worked in the livestock transfer business together, but the Dardanelle police chief did not know Paul was missing and no report was ever received. Paul had been staying at the Souls Harbor Mission in Joplin when he told one of the workers, Juanita Dwyer, that he had gotten a job with someone called Mr. Jones. Lothar Borner later confirmed that Ray Copeland had hired him from the same place, using the same alias. Paul's mother, Edith, identified a mashed t-shirt found at the scene as one she had given to her son. She said, It was a t-shirt I bought in Arkansas. I bought it at a garage sale for myself, but he begged me out of it. She also identified his blue jeans, which still bore the initials she'd written on the label. Ballistic experts confirmed that a bullet found during the autopsies had come from a rifle found in the Copeland's farmhouse. They believed Jimmy Harvey was killed on October 25, 1988. John Freeman was killed on December 8, 1988. And Paul Cowart was killed on May 3, 1989. Each victim had an X marked next to their name on a list found in the Copeland's home, and they also had bank statements there, too. The fourth victim had not been identified yet. Eight men that were on the list remained unaccounted for by November 4th. Investigators had to cross-reference the names with bank accounts and other documents to try and determine where they might have gone or if they ever left the farm. Dozens of pieces of clothing and luggage that had been seized from the Copeland's guest room were examined by the family and friends of the missing men in the hopes that they might identify who the police should be searching for. The major case squad disbanded a week later after pursuing over 350 leads and working over 3,200 hours. Sheriff O'Dell said that Livingston County would continue investigating along with the Missouri Highway Patrol indefinitely. On November 13, 1989, a news conference was held at the Livingston County Jail. Attorney General William Webster announced that three first-degree murder charges had been filed against both Ray and Faye Copeland. They intended to prosecute the couple to the fullest extent. He said, In multiple murder cases, it is the process of the Missouri Attorney General's office to seek the death penalty. It's the death penalty because of the nature of the alleged offenses here. We don't seek to deviate merely because of the age. The couple had been held in jail since the time of their arrest on October 9th, but the conspiracy charges were dismissed once the murder charges were filed. Both were held on $500,000 bonds, while their public defenders accused the attorney general's office of making the case into a media circus. Defense attorneys Barbara Schenkenberg and David Miller said, We both feel strongly that Ray and Faye's rights are being severely compromised by the daily flood of baseless innuendo, particularly in light of their frail health. 
The attorney general said that they hadn't turned the case into anything other than what it was, and you don't often dig up four bodies in the barnyard. The prosecution were pushing for the death penalty because they contended the victims had been killed to cover up the cattle scheme the Copelands were operating. On November 21, 1989, Ray Copeland spoke to a jail dispatcher, Donald Johnson, and said that he knew there was another body hidden on the Adams farm near Ludlow. Ray told Johnson, I'll guarantee you there's a body in that well, unless somebody already moved it. Ray claimed he had witnessed somebody put a body into a well on the farm and had been ordered to keep his mouth shut about it. That same day, investigators went back to the farm where the fourth victim had been found. They shone a torch into the well during the first search, but they said the water level had dropped since then. Livingston County Sheriff's Deputy Kurt Reith said there appeared to be an object at the bottom of the well, but the well was too unstable to lower anyone into it. They dug down 30 feet with a backhoe and dismantled the well, piece by piece, before making a grisly discovery. A badly decomposed body was found chained to a concrete block in four feet of water at the bottom of the 28-foot well. The victim was wearing a belt with the name Dennis on it, so it did not take long for his identity to be confirmed. Dennis Murphy's name was also on the list. 24-year-old Dennis was a divorced father of one from Normal, Illinois. He was described as being a sincere, dedicated person who just couldn't conform. His ex-wife, Becky, said that she and the daughter she shared with Dennis were in regular contact until June 1986. Becky said, Dennis, throughout our marriage, was a hard, hard worker, and he liked working on farms. But he was so vulnerable to anything. If a guy offered him $7 an hour, he would take it. Dennis was last seen getting into a truck with someone who offered him good money working in Missouri. Becky was devastated by Dennis's death, mostly for their daughter, Jacy, who was only six years old at the time. Becky said, It's going to hurt her for the rest of her life. Financially, if I could, I would give him a complete burial so that my daughter, when she's older, could go to the gravesite and say, This is my dad. Dennis had been linked to Ray Copeland before. Authorities issued a warrant for Dennis Murphy's arrest in relation to a bad check in late 1986, and they asked Ray if he knew where Dennis was. Ray claimed that Dennis had ripped him off with a check that bounced too, and he hadn't seen him since he had just left one day. Dennis was believed to have been killed in October 1986. The fourth victim was finally identified in late December 1989. 40-year-old Wayne Warner was from Bloomington, Illinois, and lived with his fiancée, Lori, in a rescue mission. Wayne was last seen in late 1986 when he left to work on a cattle ranch near Chillicothe. He told Lori he was going to work for someone called Mr. Copeland, and he wrote two letters to her, but despite her responding numerous times, she never heard from him again. Lori was able to identify some of Wayne's belongings from the items that were found in the Copeland's home. Police believed Wayne was killed in November 1986. On December 28, 1989, a grand jury indictment charged Ray and Faye Copeland with five counts of murder. When they attended arraignment hearings on January 1st, they both entered not guilty pleas. Faye cried throughout the hearing before they were both remanded back to jail and held without bond. The trials were severed as Ray was ordered to undergo mental evaluations at a state hospital. 
His defense attorney, Barbara Schenkenberg, had a statement from one specialist that had deemed him incompetent to stand trial, but phase trial went ahead. Jury selection began in late October 1990 in Vernon County Circuit Court. It was impossible to find an impartial jury in Livingston due to the publicity surrounding the case. So once the eight women and four men were chosen, they were brought to Chillicothe for the trial. Prosecutor Ken Holshoff told the court, This case has many facets, but the common thread that runs through this case is a human element. You will experience the life of a transient. These transients were sharing one common hope that tomorrow would bring a brighter day. A forensic pathologist concluded that at least two of the men had likely been shot as they slept and died from a single gunshot wound to the head. The state believed that Faye was complicit in the five murders she was charged with because it was her handwriting on the list of men that had been found, and the list contained the names of victims. Faye's attorney, David Miller, said she only wrote lists because Ray was illiterate. He told the jury, Evidence will flush out, and the family will tell you she compulsively made a list. It was chronically an effort on her part to ascertain what was going on. It was just a list of people coming and going from her house. This is a picture of a lady who, I think, was in an old-fashioned marriage, and I'm not using that in a good sense. She was literally incapable of questioning the actions of her husband. Her whole life experience told her Ray's business was Ray's business and not hers or anybody else's. Our evidence will show a woman dominated and isolated, as much a victim as anyone else. She took no active part in the crime and didn't even know what was going on. Testimony from the head bookkeeper at the Community Bank of Chillicothe, where John Freeman had opened an account using the Copeland's address, alleged that Faye had come to the bank with letters that she had received bearing John's name and said, She didn't know where I got the address, that she didn't know the man, and she didn't want us sending any more mail. Faye Copeland's daughter-in-law, Bonnie, testified that she had witnessed Ray verbally abuse his wife on numerous occasions. Bonnie was married to the Copeland's youngest son, Wayne, who testified that his father often shouted at his mother, but he had not seen Ray hit his mother. Wayne said, he saved that for us. Outside the presence of the jury, psychiatrist Dr. Marilyn Hutchinson testified that Faye Copeland was a victim of battered wife syndrome. She said she had spoken with Faye over 30 times since February 1990 and saw that she exhibited symptoms consistent with being psychologically battered by a domineering husband. The testimony was not heard by the jury, but it was kept on record in the event of an appeal. Faye Copeland did not testify herself. She was unable to speak because she was crying so much. At the end of the nine-day trial, the prosecutor told the jury about letters Faye had sent her husband from jail while searches were being conducted at their farm. She had written, nothing found, nothing gained, and that things would cool down. Prosecutor Holshoff said, I'm sorry, Mrs. Copeland, things have not cooled down. We have exposed you and your husband in your vile little game. Referring to the defense statement that Faye had been abused herself, the prosecutor said, Faye Copeland is a victim of the truth. After two and a half hours of deliberations, the jury returned and found Faye Copeland guilty of five counts of murder. 
The penalty phase began when the same jury who had determined her guilt would have to recommend the punishment she should serve, life without parole or the death sentence. Doug Roberts, one of the prosecuting attorneys, asked the jury, If we don't seek the death penalty after one of the worst, if not the worst, cases of serial murder in the state's history, when do we seek it? The defense offered testimony in mitigation to show that Faye Copeland had been abused for decades by her husband and was too afraid to stand up to him. Their daughter, Betty Lou, testified that Ray told them what to do and when to do it, and her mother was not exempt from his wrath. She said, There was no discussion. That was it. She, like us kids, knew her place. She shut up. Their son, Al, said that his father warned them to stay out of his business when they expressed concern that the bank was going to foreclose on the farm. He said that Ray treated Faye a lot worse than trash. Her attorney, Miller, said, Faye Copeland was not the dominant party in this scheme. She was the follower. She was the accomplice. Her role was minor. Prosecutor Hulshoff insisted the facts demanded the ultimate punishment. He told the jury, These five men meant no more to Faye and Ray Copeland than pieces of paper. So what did they do? They lured them, deceived them, recruited them, betrayed them, and they murdered them, and their lifeless bodies were littered around this county like so many pieces of paper. After three hours of deliberations, the jury returned and recommended the death sentence for four counts and life without parole for the fifth. As they announced the decision, members of the jury were in tears, as was Faye Copeland. If the judge accepted their recommendation, Faye Copeland would become the oldest person sentenced to death in Missouri since the death penalty was reinstated over two decades before. Faye spoke to the St. Joseph News Press-Gazette a month later. In her first media interview since her arrest in late 1989, Faye told the Gazette that she had no idea that her husband had been killing men who worked on their farm. She said, I was not involved in anything he did. I don't know where he picked them up or where they went. I don't think there was anybody more surprised than me. He was always the father of my kids. I just loved him so much. It just doesn't seem right. I'll always love him, but not as much now. He has done me great damage. I begged him time and time again to please stay out of trouble. We had our home and everything paid for. We were on Social Security. So why would he turn around and mess all that up like he has? Faye had worked hard to make the mortgage payments. She worked up until the time of her arrest at the age of 69. She said, I couldn't leave him. I loved him too much. Her sons, Wayne and Al, supported their mother and visited her in jail, where she was the only female inmate. Wayne asked, Even if she knew something, who was she going to tell? The following day, Ray Copeland contacted the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He invited them to interview him at Fulton State Hospital, where he was still undergoing an evaluation. Ray maintained that he was completely innocent, but admitted that his wife had sent him a Christmas card that marked their last communication. He told the reporter, She just said, I'm not supposed to write. I wrote her a letter. I told her I was okay. He cried as he said, I never killed anybody in my life. Me and my wife lived together for 50 years. We never killed nobody. We never hurt nobody. And we never talked about hurting nobody. 
I hope that me and my wife will fall over dead in the next five minutes if we done this. I know I can't get a fair trial. This has been all over radio and TV. Ray and Faye Copeland, the man-killers. They haven't got no witnesses at all that saw me shoot anybody or bury anybody. Some of these boys stayed with me a week or ten days, and then they took their money out of the bank and left. Just because these boys left some dirty clothes in a suitcase at my house, and just because they found a list of their names in my house, they think we did it. This is the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. I'm not going to be able to hold up much longer. I'm sure not planning on killing myself, but I feel like I'm just going to completely lose my mind. I'm close to that right now. Very close. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. After months of delays, Ray had finally been deemed competent to stand trial. He did have diabetes, brain damage, failing eyesight, and partial deafness, but they felt that he could assist in his own defense and understand the proceedings. Just two days before the trial was scheduled to begin, Ray Copeland signed a plea bargain admitting to the five murders on the condition that he and his wife would not face the death penalty. The following day, the presiding judge, Weber, declined to approve the plea agreement and dismissed the prosecutor, Doug Roberts, who had offered it. The defense believed that Judge Weber had a predisposition in the case because he had presided over Faye's trial and sought to have him removed, but this motion was denied. Prosecutor Roberts said he had agreed to the plea deal because Ray Copeland had organic brain damage and would not live through years of appeals. His mental state would mean he could not be executed, which he felt was unfair to Faye. Many felt that the assistant attorney general and presiding judge were in favor of the death penalty for political reasons. The attorney general was believed to have plans to run for governor. Faye's attorney, David Miller, said, It borders on the macabre to continue to pursue the death penalty against someone against whom, in all likelihood, it will never be carried out. It was difficult to find impartial jurors. Jury selection had begun in Phelps County for Ray's trial, but it had to be moved to St. Louis County. Ray's attorney called it the most exhaustive jury selection in state history. When the selection was complete, jurors were transported to Chillicothe for the proceedings to begin. Ray Copeland leaned forward and adjusted his hearing aid to listen to the opening statements. 
Assistant Attorney General Kenny Hulshoff compared the evidence and testimony to a novel and urged the jurors to read it page by page, taking in the bank records linked to the victims, the rifle that shot the fatal rounds. He called it a biography of a man who over three years executed five men. Defense attorney Martin Warhurst said the evidence was, It's more like a garage sale jigsaw puzzle with three puzzles in one box, and it won't make a picture. Witnesses identified photographs of the victims as men they had seen with Ray Copeland. Drifters who had survived their time at the Copelands testified that they had been instructed to open bank accounts in nearby towns to use at cattle auctions. One said that the first check he had to write was a blank check for Ray Copeland. He said Ray told him that if he was killed in an accident, he wanted to be able to get the money out. Seventy-two witnesses were called by the state before they rested their case after nine days of trial. The defense claimed the prosecution only had circumstantial evidence, but after two and a half hours of deliberations, the jury found Ray Copeland guilty on all five counts of murder. As they had in his wife's trial a few months earlier, the jury were tasked with deciding what sentence to recommend. The defense produced witnesses to testify about Ray's mental state. A Yale neurologist, Dr. Murakangas, said that Ray suffered from dementia. The doctor said that Ray could not recall what kind of cattle he bought and that he heard voices and sounds late at night that convinced him that an international cattle conspiracy existed. Ray was said to have an IQ in the lowest range of people still functioning in society. His attorney, Barbara Schenkenberg, told the jury, His brain is dying. It's shriveling as we sit here. It's incurable. You don't have to execute Ray Copeland to punish him. You don't have to execute Ray Copeland to protect society. Ray Copeland is not going to be any threat to society. The prosecutor said that Ray had demonstrated a complete and utter disregard for the sanctity of human life and that the sentence of death was appropriate. After two hours of deliberations, the jury returned and recommended the death sentence. The victim's remains had been kept in the mortuary until the trials were complete, but they were finally able to be laid to rest almost two years after they were discovered in shallow graves. On April 27, 1991, Faye Copeland was sentenced to death. An appeal she had filed requesting a new trial on the grounds that she was a victim of battered spouse syndrome and because the judge had dinner with the sequestered jurors during the trial was dismissed. She sobbed as the sentence was delivered and called out, I am not guilty of these charges and I want you to know it. On May 22, 1991, Ray Copeland received the same sentence. He cupped his hand over his ear as he strained to hear the judge and wiped his eyes upon hearing his punishment. Ray Copeland became the oldest person on death row in America and Faye became the oldest woman. They were also the only couple to be sentenced to death as co-defendants. Ray was sent to Potosi Correctional Center in southeast Missouri. Faye was sent to the Wrens Correctional Center. The Copelands' children worried their mother would die in prison before she got another chance to appeal. They felt as though the jury had their minds made up before they began deliberating and believed that their mother was not as complicit as their father, with whom they had cut contact with altogether. Even Ray's brother believed that Faye had been at least partially innocent. John Copeland said, If she had anything to do with it, he made her do it. She was scared to death of him. 
He didn't want her to talk to anyone. He'd look at her and she'd just drop her head like a sheep ducking from a dog. Faye's attorney said that all she had done was write lists for her husband, who was illiterate, and make the victims feel at home. He told reporters, To sentence someone to death for cooking and washing dishes, to me, that's the most distressing thing about this case. No one ever argued that she pulled the trigger or that she was even present. In October 1993, Ray Copeland died two weeks after suffering a stroke. The county said the silver lining was that they would recoup the enormous medical fees it cost to house and care for the convicted killer. He was 78 years old. Faye appealed again in 1994. A clinical psychologist testified about the abuse Faye had endured during 50 years of marriage. Dr. Lenore Walker said he would throw her body halfway across the room. There were times he used objects on her. It was also alleged that Ray would force Faye to have sex with transients while he watched. The Copeland's children testified to a childhood marred by their father's abuse. They said that the only reason they never witnessed Faye being beaten was they ran as soon as they heard Ray get angry. Al Copeland was beaten with a claw hammer at the age of 10 because he passed his father the wrong tool. He said, When Ray got in one of his moods, we all scattered. My brothers and sister never saw Ray hit me, either. That was our life. Although they supported their mother relentlessly, the Copeland children had no doubt that their father was guilty. More appeals followed, and in 1996, following a petition bearing 3,000 signatures for her release, Faye's sentence was upheld by the Missouri Supreme Court. Chief Justice John C. Holstein wrote in the decision, at minimum, the documentary evidence showed that defendant participated in the financial transactions involving the victims and permits inferences that she was in agreement with Ray to carry out the scheme and had knowledge of the victim's fate. An execution date was set for January 3, 1997, but it was delayed by another appeal. Faye had been interviewed in 1998, where it was said that she was freer on death row than she had been throughout her marriage to Ray Copeland. She was studying for a high school equivalency degree, and she worked in the prison greenhouse. In an affidavit for her appeal, Faye said, Ray didn't like for me to plant flowers. If I planted flowers around the edge of the garden, he plowed them up. If I planted flowers in the yard, he would mow them down. I couldn't have flowers at home. He didn't like me to be tending to anything other than him. As long as I was with him or working the cattle or the tractor, that was okay. But flowers? No. He didn't like them. Another federal appeal was pending, and her attorney, Sean O'Brien, said, There's no question that Ray killed these people. The issue in Faye's case is if she is in any way responsible for what Ray did. She is just as much a victim of Ray's conduct as those men who are planted in the ground. On Faye's 78th birthday, her sentence was overturned, but the conviction remained. She was to remain behind bars for the rest of her life, although she still believed she would be free. Faye said, I was raised to love my husband and support him no matter what. The man is the head of the family. The Bible says it should be that way. It wouldn't do to say if Ray was mean to me or not. Yes, he did mess up my life, but that's not to say I wasn't a good wife to him. I was never mean to him. Maybe we'd have got along better if I had knocked the hell out of him a few times. I don't like talking with the media because 90% of the time wasn't nothing said right. Just tell the truth. I'll give you that probably the worst mistake of my life was marrying him. 
but life can be good or it can be bad. It's what you make of it. I've often thought since, maybe this was for the best. Where did I go wrong if I went wrong? I know one place was getting married at all, but he was my life for many, many years. I didn't know nothing else. Will I get out? I may go out feet first, but I'll get out of here. Someday. Faye Copeland had a stroke in August of 2002. She was medically paroled to a nursing home near her hometown, partially paralyzed and unable to speak. She died in December 2003, aged 82. At least three men remain unaccounted for from the list recovered from the Copeland's farm. Franklin Hudson, Tom Park, and Dale Brake all had opened bank accounts in the area, but there was no trace of them afterwards, and no remains have been recovered. It's believed that the Copelands obtained around $32,000 in profits from the cattle scheme, and it cost at least five lives. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.